Well, it's a sad day today. We finish our series in Jonah. I'll miss him. I hope you've uh, enjoyed uh, the little series we've done as much as I've uh, enjoyed doing it. Uh, but today is the last one. It's only been a little mini-series. We've only done four. Um, oh, mass exodus of babies. <laughs> so here's a question for you, first of all, today. Um, where, where do you go if you want to really understand human nature? Where, where would you go to gain... Uh, an accurate understanding of human nature? It's a good question to think about. One chap gave his answer to that question, well, not that question, but he gave his answer to that concept in the news this week. Trevor Nunn. Has anyone heard of Trevor Nunn? Film director, one of our country's most successful uh, theatre directors, 74 years old this year, so he's seen a bit of life, hasn't he? A bit older than me. Not a lot, but a bit. This week, Trevor Nunn claimed that you could learn more about human nature from Shakespeare than you could from the Bible. Very interesting and bold claim. Let me read to you uh, what he said. Shakespeare is my religion. Shakespeare has more wisdom and insight about our lives about how to live and how not to live, how to forgive and how to understand our fellow creatures than any religious tract. 100 times more than the Bible. I'm sorry to say that, but over and over again in Shakespeare's plays, there is an understanding of the human condition that doesn't exist in religious books. Isn't that an incredible quote? Some, of the press, some quotes of the press took great issue with him. For, for his comments but Trevor Nunn would say if you want to know what human nature is really like read Shakespeare because in his plays he explains human nature better even than the Bible does where do you go if you want to understand human nature now I'm no expert in Shakespeare I studied a little bit at school Macbeth I think um, it struck me that maybe Rotherham isn't a place where many people might be so familiar with Shakespeare, I don't know. It struck me that some people might, in that quote, substitute something else other than Shakespeare. Think of it. Let me read the quote again. Facebook is my religion. Facebook has more wisdom and insight about our lives about how to live and how not to live, how to forgive, how to understand our fellow creatures, than any religious tract, 100 times more than the Bible. I'm sorry to say that, but over and over again in Facebook, there's an understanding of the human condition that doesn't exist in religious books. You see the point? Where do you go to learn things about human... You might put Corrie in there. I don't know. EastEnders. Hello Magazine. I don't know what your thing is. But Trevenon's comments, anyway, this week made me think a lot about our time with Jonah. And I hope that we've all related to this man. Um, it is sad to leave him on our last one today. I, I think Jonah is, is a brilliant 
brilliantly written story that does speak volumes about human nature. And I think it's even more remarkable when we think that he wrote it about himself. As we, Jonah Selfie, you remember that? But I think the thing that Trevor Nunn surely overlooks is that the Bible goes much further than Shakespeare or Facebook or Curry. In just reflecting human nature, Jonah here is also giving us a tremendous insight into God's nature. And I think that that goes way beyond any, any other place we might go to think about human nature. In the story of Jonah, we do see for sure something about ourselves. But we also see something very profound about the heart of God. This whole book then is not just a sort of Shakespearean comment on human nature but a glorious look at God's own nature. Jonah contrasts God's good values with his own slightly twisted values. Jonah contrasts God's great generosity with his own slightly narrow self-centeredness. But here's the thing. I want to suggest to you, here's a little seed of a thought for you to take away. I want to suggest that actually we, we can't know what we are really like until we see something of what God is like. We can't properly see that we are self-centered until we see how generous and outward-looking God is. So I, I, I want to suggest that our, our own human nature can only, in the end, be properly defined, understood accurately in the light of God's own nature. The, the way we've divided up uh, this book is deliberate. I, I haven't got a clicker here to move our slides on, so I'll ask Rich to do that. I'll give you a little wink. Okay. <laughs> Maybe that was a big wink. <laughs> um, we've, we've divided the book up very deliberately this way. We only did four sessions. Jonah ran away, part one. God chased him, part two. Jonah sulked, part three. And today we're thinking about God keeping on chasing him. My point here is that we would never know that we were running or sulking unless we realised that God was after us. In other words, it is God's mission to the human race that helps us to see most clearly what is wrong with the human race. Do you get that? The reason that God is a saviour is because we need saving. The reason that God is chasing is because we are running. The reason God is gracious and kind to us is because we are fallen. If, if we want to know what we're really like, the best place for us to start is to look at what God is doing. And when we see what God's doing, that throws a great light on who we really are and what we really need. When we try to understand ourselves by looking at ourselves 
or looking in the mirror or trying to compare ourselves with other people we'll go around in circles but when we start by thinking about what God is doing then we'll begin to see ourselves as he sees us in my preparation for this series I came across a writer who said this I quote to understand God's mission we have to understand man's condition and I know what he means when he says that that is true but I've wondered whether there is a sense in which that should be the other way around you can actually only know your true condition when you begin to see what God has done to save you does that make sense? The reason God has, has intervened in history and in our lives is precisely because we're so far away from him that we need him to come and chase us, rescue us. So, to, to wrap up John's story uh, this afternoon, I, I suppose my aim this afternoon is to see something of God's nature and God's heart And in doing so, I hope that we'll see something about ourselves as we look at God. So, I want to um, say three things, uh, three ways from Jonah that we can see God's heart. And uh, here's the first. We see God's heart, first of all, in the fact that he is very patient with Jonah. I don't think that's hard for us to grasp, is it? God is very patient with him. And I want to show that from chapter 4 here in four ways. So, number one, the first thing is that God can handle Jonah as a work in progress. Jonah is God's prophet but he's not the finished article and I Jonah ran away God's word came to him go and preach to the great city of Nineveh Jonah said I'm off in the other direction I don't want to go and do what you want me to do he ran away God's prophet ran away then when he finally is brought back by God amazingly saved by God sensationally saved by God when he goes to Nineveh, he preaches, the whole city's turned upside down, and what does he do? He sulks. He sulks. He's absolutely furious, disgusted. And I, I don't want to dwell on these, um, these subheadings, but does that not teach us that even the best of us have recurring sins and difficulties in our lives? I I wonder, you know, whether both non-Christians and Christians, both unbelievers and believers, have the wrong idea about Christianity. Non-Christians think that Christians somehow are like these morally superior people who have got their whole life sorted. But I think even Christians fall into that trap. Christians think, oh, I, I, I should have everything sorted. Christians are people who are not yet the finished article. And I think Jonah teaches us that God can handle us too as a work in progress. 
He's not finished with us yet. We're not what we were. We're not yet what we will be. But we are a work in progress. God can handle that. Does that encourage you? Secondly, God can handle Jonah's mixed up but honest prayers. Uh, Chapter 4 is very significant. Jonah's behaviour is not good. I think the narrative is written by him deliberately to make us go, oh, that's not good. We read and we think, Jonah, what is the matter with you? What is the matter? You're such a racist. You're so prejudiced. You're so narrow-minded, Jonah. But look at the start of verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. What I, love about, what I love about John in chapter 4 is that he's not running anymore. Chapter 1, God's word came to him. He just got his coat and scarpered. Chapter 4, he's not running, but praying. That's progress, isn't it? There's a development here in Jonah's life. He is changing. And I, I don't think he's praying to God here as his enemy. After all, as we said, God has saved him. God is after him. He's nowhere to run anyway. But we now find him bringing all of his issues, even his most serious doubts, to God. He's still mixed up. He tells God here that he wants to die. But the underlying point is that the communication channels are open. He prayed to the Lord. He brought it all to God. He was honest in prayer. Perhaps he has lost some perspective, but there is great hope here in that he brings himself and his issues to God. Does that surprise you? Is that how you view God? Do you sometimes feel that if your prayers are not perfect, that somehow God isn't listening? That that is a lie that will cause you to retreat from God. God longs to hear your prayers, your cries, your groanings, and he can handle them. Not because those prayers are perfect, but because he is patient. He can handle mixed up but honest prayers. Thirdly, I want to say that God's patience is shown in the fact that God gives him space and time to reflect. Jonah here, he's very angry. And uh, he prayed to the Lord. He puts it all out there on the table. And at the end of his little prayer, now, oh Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. What does God do? Jonah, you... No. Verse 4, the Lord replies, Oh, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Have you any right to be angry? Do you get the sense of... Sorry, I've I've given you a little point there. God doesn't fly off the handle with him. We'll come to the one in a minute. 
God, God, God responds very gently to him. Jonah, we said this last week, didn't we? Sometimes our kids kind of come in and uh, they'll say, and, and Jane, Jane and me will go, Jane or me, sometimes both of us will go, do you want to rewind? Do you want to just think that through? Do you want to go back? It's hot. I, I often think that what we say is like toothpaste. And uh, try this at home. What comes out of your mouth, you, you squeeze the toothpaste onto your toothbrush and then try and put it back in the tube. You try that one day and you'll have toothpaste all over you. It'll be on your face, it'll be on your clothes, it'll be all over your hands. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube any more than you can put your words back in your mouth. It's true, isn't it? Sometimes we, we do want to rewind. God is very tender with him. Jonah, do you want to think again? Have you got any right to be angry? This is the key question in the whole book, and God's going to ask it again in a minute. First, God has something to teach him. So the fourth thing, we did get there in the end, God gives him space and time to think. He is so angry that he can't even give, give God an answer. You know, when you ask something to someone who's angry and they kind of know the answer but they just can't bring themselves to say it just I'm not, I'm not even going to go there and that's Jonah Jonah, Jonah, oh Jonah have you got any right to be angry verse 5, Jonah went out and sat down <laughs> uh, he just goes and sits he, he, he's, he's not interested in conversation don't talk to me, I kind of know you're right but I don't want to talk about it He's sulking. He goes out and he sits down at a place east of the city. That little detail is quite important, actually. If you, if you can think of where Israel was, he, he has effectively travelled east to Nineveh. And when he goes out of the city, you would think if he was on his way home, he would come out west. So it's very interesting that he goes out of the city in the opposite, to the opposite far side of the city. I, I, I think he's got no intention of going home. He's lost the plot so completely. He doesn't want to go back to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go home. So he just goes out and sits down. <laughs> it's like, I want to die. I've had enough. This is ridiculous. He's lost it. But God here doesn't hammer him. but gives him space, time to think. I, I, I think all of this is a very different picture of God than we sometimes conjure up in our minds. Sometimes the way we relate to God is based on us thinking that God is like an angry, abusive, some kind of tyrant. We imagine God saying, I want you to be perfect and I want it now and if you're not, I'm going to whip you and punish you. Jonah possibly deserves some of that, doesn't he? But what he actually receives from the Lord is all of this, isn't it? Patience. Listen, God does not have a violent temper. He is not some kind of demanding monster. He is kind. 
patient. This biblical truth is so very important. Much, much later in the Bible, the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Rome and he says to them, do you not realize that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Romans 2.4 This truth is designed to melt our hearts, not to harden them. It is very hard for us to turn to an angry God. It is much easier for us to turn to a patient and kind God. God's kindness is meant to encourage us not to take him for granted as though he were soft, but to turn to him in reality. I looked up that quote from Romans 2 in a Bible version called The Message. Some of you are familiar with it. It's a paraphrase. And I thought the way it rendered these verses in Romans was very helpful. It says this, You didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you could distract God from seeing all your misdoings and from coming down on you hard? Or did you think that because he's such a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? Better... Think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into radical life change. Oh, that was very helpful. This whole patience is actually summed up in Jonah's own prayer. What does he pray? In verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Is that how you think of God? The incredible thing here is that Jonah, as God's prophet, he knows all the right theology in his head. He prays it. This is a quote from Exodus. I know what you're like, God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, bounding in love. He knows the formula in his head. But he's so frightened of God being like this to the Ninevites that it hasn't dawned on him that God's like this towards him as well. The very truth he's afraid of is the very truth he needs. And he's so busy thinking about other people that he fails to apply it to himself. At this point in his life, this truth needs to sink from his head and be burned into his heart. He needs to experience it, not just to know it from a book or in his head. And so God proceeds to teach him so that that might happen. Head knowledge becomes something that he experiences in his heart. So we see God's heart, first of all, in the fact that he's patient. Secondly, we see something of God's heart here in that God teaches or refines him. There we go. So here's the deal. If God's patience is like the passive side of God's dealing with Jonah, 
there is an active side as well. God is patient, but he's also teaching. So we're here now in the realms of what we might call God's discipline. And I I, want to suggest to you that God's love for Jonah is not just nice. It's not just sentimental, fluffy, warm and cuddly. But God's love for Jonah is very robust and tough. Yes, God is patient, but yes, he also teaches and refines. His love is more like a purifying fire than a soft marshmallow. And we need to understand that. God is after him. And so God gives him an object lesson that is both brilliant and painful. So let's um, have a look at how God teaches this man. There we go. God gives him a brilliant object lesson. Number one. The first thing God, God does is give him some comfort in his need. Jonah went out, sat down at, the, at a place east of the city. He's given up. Just want to die. He makes himself a shelter and sits in its shade. And he waits to see what would happen to the city. Now, I, I, I don't know what materials he would have found. I, I, w- I would have thought if there were any good materials, somebody would have already had them to make a fire or whatever. So he, he's making a shelter that probably isn't that great. And I don't know if you've been to countries where it's really hot, but, and, I, and I, I don't know whether he has a bald head, but it, you know, he's in the desert. He, he, the sun's beating down and he's trying to protect himself. It, it does beg the question why he doesn't just go back into Nineveh. <laughs> that would have been easier, wouldn't it? But he's stewing, isn't he? He's in a huff. And I, and I think God is wanting Jonah to think and reflect. So God doesn't do anything dramatic that would distract him from that. He he gives him space and he gives him the comfort of this vine. The Lord, verse 6, the Lord God provided a vine and he made it grow up over Jonah, over his little makeshift shade for his head to, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. So here's here's my second uh, thought. God comforts him. But he comforts him in a way that gives him the experience of becoming attached to something. Jonah is not just happy here. He's very happy. He loves this plant. Maybe even gave it a name. I don't know. What would you call a vine? I don't know. Have you got a vine at all? What would you call a vine? Maybe he gave it a name. You can imagine him there in his hammock under this lovely plant. Oh, that's good. Such a bad day yesterday. This is, this is the life. And he becomes attached. In his distress, here is something that his heart can attach to that almost causes him to rise above his distress. This, we talked about his instability last time, didn't we? Jonah was very angry. Here, he's now very happy. He's up and down like a yo-yo in a way. 
But here he is in his hammock under this wonderful shade and he's beginning to to think through some of these things that are happening. But as quickly as his joy rises, his hopes are dashed. And here's, so there's comfort, there's attachment and then there's loss. This is a severe mercy. Verse 7, At dawn the next day God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. What on earth is God doing? He is exposing him to significant pain here in order to teach him. God sends a worm, the plant dies, God ratchets up the discomfort, he sends an east wind, the sun beats down, Jonah is dripping in the baking heat, faint and thirsty. And and the, the verses are clear that it's God who is sending. The whole book is all about God's sovereignty, isn't it? None of this is an accident. In chapter 1, God sends the wind and a storm and a fish. In chapter 4, he sends a plant and a worm and a scorching east wind. God is behind. None of this is random. And now God's more specific with him. And he asks the same question. God said to Jonah, verse 9, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? The question before was, Do you have a right to be angry about Nineveh? Now, God says, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Jonah says, I do. I'm angry enough to die. Just let me die. Now those are actually Jonah's last words in the whole book from his perspective this book ends with him shouting in God's face just let me die and God has him exactly where he wants him oh Jonah 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 you cared about the plant it made you happy for one day And you were sad to lose it. Can you not see, Jonah, that I care about this city? Just notice the contrast that God makes. Jonah, you didn't even make the var. The implication being that Nineveh is God's creation. Jonah, you are sad because the vine did you good. God is sad because Nineveh is a complete and utter mess. The vine is cheap and transient. God says to him, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Nineveh is full of people. Jonah, you loved a plant. I love 120,000 people who are heading for a lost eternity. 
Jonah only loves what helps him. God loves the unlovely because that's what he is like. Jonah's love is inward and self-serving. God's love is overflowingly generous to others. And the book just ends there, hanging. Should I not be concerned about that great city? The end. I don't know if Trevor Nunn's read this book. Because that's miles better than Shakespeare, in my opinion. It's a brilliant story. And the reason it's left hanging there... Sorry. Making the babies cry. (laughs) The reason it's left hanging there, one writer says this. It is like God throws this spear of a challenging question at Jonah... And at the very last second, Jonah dodges out of the way so that the spear is coming straight for the reader. Do you get that? Should I not be concerned about that great city? That is a convicting lesson for Jonah. We're not told how Jonah responds. I think in the end he responded well because he survived to write the story. But this is not one of those dramas where it assumes the audience is stupid and gives them all the answers. It leaves the question there for us to respond to. What a masterful teacher God is. Oh, Jonah, you're so angry because I love this rebellious and wayward city. But you are so far from me. I love them despite their brutality and wickedness. And I love you, despite your pride and arrogance. God is patient, but he is not soft. His love is like a refining fire. Before we move on and move to a close, I just wanted to give you, give you this. John Newton is very famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace. I don't know if you saw the film. Um, he, he wrote that in the 1700s, I think it was. He was a slave trader who was converted to Christ. He wrote a lot of hymns. And one of the hymns he wrote is partly based on this incident in chapter 4 of Jonah. We know that because in the King James version of the Bible, the plant is not called a vine. It's called a gourd. G-O-U-R-D. Gourd. And in this hymn, John Newton mentions the good. And I think he's referring to this chapter. Let me read this hymn to you. And uh, hopefully Rich will keep up. And you'll see the words appear just to help you remember them. This This is a great piece of poetry. So John Newton writes, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might, know, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favoured hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, 
He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yes, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my goods and laid me low. That's Jonah. Blasted his goods. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? It's in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Sometimes God will blast your goods. He will allow our hearts to become entwined with things so that he can teach us what is truly important. So we see God's heart in his patience with Jonah and in his tough discipline of Jonah. But as we close our studies, I want to suggest thirdly that we see most clearly something of God's heart in what Jonah's story points to. 800 years after this all took place, God sent another messenger. He sent this messenger not to a great city like Nineveh, but to the whole world. Not to one nation, but to all nations. This messenger was not reluctant, like Jonah had been. He didn't run away from his enemies in desperate fear, but ran headlong towards his enemies in passionate and joyful love. Neither did he sulk, not once. Rather, he was delighted and honoured to do his father's bidding. His name is not Jonah, but Jesus. He willingly and cheerfully left the comfort and glory of his heavenly home and came to this broken world. He too once sat outside a great city, like Jonah did, but rather than weeping for himself, he wept for the city. And his heart was moved with compassion for the people who lived there, who refused to repent and return to the God who loved them. Like Jonah, Jesus gave his life to save others, but not this time sailors in a storm, but people like us, who fall very short of God's goodness and glory. Jesus came to lay down his life to save your life. I said earlier, it is very hard to turn to an angry God. Do you know the reason that we can turn to God is because God's anger has been turned away from us by Jesus. He has taken it all away. The enmity is gone. 
God can receive you now cheerfully because Jesus has taken the shame and offence of our sin away. Jesus too spent three days and three nights in darkness like Jonah, but for him it wasn't in a fish, but in the grave itself. And afterwards he emerged from his tomb and rose in tremendous cosmic power, shattering even death, our greatest enemy. And you know what I love most about Jesus? It is his happiness. Jonah sulked when people were saved. Jesus is filled with gladness and joy. There's nothing miserable or stingy or reluctant about him. When his father says go, he is up and at it. That's Jesus. His energy and zeal and enthusiasm to embrace his destiny. It says in the Bible, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. His enthusiasm to save people, no, to save you and me, is breathtaking. He is undistractable, if that's a word, undivertible. Any obstacles in his way, he smashes them as he strives and yearns and works and longs to love people. There is not a hint in him of laziness or dreariness or sleepiness. There isn't a word of complaint. There's no roll of the eyes or tutting or sarcastic mumbling. What is more, this great messenger has the power to give people what he commands. He calls people to repent and gives them grace to repent. He calls people to believe and gives them power to believe. He calls people to live and he actually has the power to give them life. He speaks his message and there's power in the message. He isn't asking for an opinion or making a nice suggestion, but speaking words of life and power and healing to helpless, needy, rebellious people. Everything that he requires of you, he will give you as you trust him. Jesus is the ultimate, infinite ball of gladness and goodness and power. Nothing is too hard for him. He isn't reliant on us, but we are utterly at his disposal. You know, don't you, how Jesus interprets and applies the story of Jonah? In Jesus' ministry, some self-righteous, unbelieving men came to Jesus with a very pathetic, cheeky question. They effectively said to Jesus, you know, they straighten their ties, they come up to Jesus, and they said, you know, we're, we're struggling to believe you. Give, give us a sign. It's so hard to believe in you, Jesus. We would if we could, because we're good, really. If only we had some evidence. They made him out to be stingy and pretended that they were morally upright. 
They'd seen with their own eyes Jesus raise people from the dead. And they had the cheek to say, give us a sign, we're struggling to believe in you. They pretended that they were helpless to believe when in fact they were just plain stubborn. Jesus said, I'm giving you nothing except the sign of Jonah. Do you know why? Because if the Ninevites could repent at the preaching of this sad, reluctant, accident-prone, sulking, stupid prophet, you haven't got a leg to stand on. Because one greater than Jonah is here now. Jesus is greater than Jonah in every way imaginable, isn't he? He's greater in his person. He's greater in his character. He's greater in his role as saviour. He's greater in his message of forgiveness. He's greater in his power to change people's lives. He is greater in his amazing, glad and joyful love. Jesus is saying to them, and maybe to us today, you have heard the great glad news that God in heaven saves people. You've heard it from none other than the Son of God himself. The question is, will you turn from you and turn to trust in him? Simples. This book has been all about the heart of God. And you will never know you properly until you know him. If you want to follow up on the book of Jonah, one of the best books I came across in my preparation was this one, (coughs) Surprised by Grace. I highly recommend it. Let me end our series by ending with the story that Tullian Chavidian here ends with. There's a story told from the Civil War days before America's slaves were freed, about a northerner who went to a slave auction and he purchased a young slave girl, paid the money and he bought her. As they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and told her, you're free. With amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything. And to be wherever I want to be? Yep. And even go wherever I want to go? Yes, he answered with a smile. You're free to go wherever you'd like. She looked at him intently and replied, Then I'll go with you. Listen, Jesus has come to the slave market. He came to us there because we could not go to him. He came and purchased us with his own blood so that we would no longer be a slave to sin but a slave to Christ which is the essence of freedom. And now there's no freer place to be in life than going with him. With the one who is himself himself 
our true liberty. Amen.